been looking at 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, back in 2019. And ever since then, we've been cutting out little chunks of it to think about and uh, read and pray about. Um, And as we've seen over the last three years, we've seen how Paul spends considerable amount of time in chapters uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10. He spends considerable amount of time discussing things that they themselves, the Christians in Corinth, uh, they want his input on. Uh, They want to know what he thinks. Um, And we saw that he spent quite a bit of time on marriage and food that's been sacrificed to idols, those two things in particular. But then at the beginning of chapter 11, Paul starts down a list of four things he wants to speak to them about, whether they like it or not. And those four things are these. Firstly, the relationship between the sexes and gender identity. Secondly, holy communion and where they're getting it seriously wrong. Thirdly, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And fourth, the gospel of resurrection. And we've spent time this year already looking at items one through three. Today, we're going to look at the fourth of these things, the gospel of resurrection. Resurrection. In fact, we're going to spend the next three weeks uh, looking at the gospel of resurrection. Three weeks moving through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, looking today at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next week, the resurrection of the dead. And then the week after that, the resurrection of the body. The pastoral difficulty that Paul wants to confront is not difficult to find. Uh, We find it loud and clear, actually, in verse 12, where Paul writes something like this, If it has been preached to you already that Christ has been raised from the dead, how come certain individuals amongst you are teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead? And another voice of opposition can possibly be heard in verse 35. But someone might ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And from these uh, verses, we can put together a likely objection to the doctrine of resurrection, as it may well have manifested itself in the church in Corinth, in the mid-first century AD. And that objection is this. There can't be a resurrection of the dead because such an idea is unbelievable and unpalatable and unimaginable. Now, we remember that Corinth is a Greek city a rich and prosperous trade city in a highly strategic location in an isthmus of of land, a neck of land between the Gulf of, of, of Corinth on one side and the Saronic Gulf on the other. It's also halfway between two important cities, Athens and Tripoli. It's a rich city. The church in that city, we know, had Christians of both Jewish background and also Gentile background. Christians of Jewish background, 
Jews living in Corinth who have come to faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Christ, and Christians of Gentile background, Greeks and Romans and many other nationalities who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. And we remember that uh, in ancient Greek uh, uh, philosophical thought, the, the, the way that the vast majority of people thought back then, there was a, a very stark distinction between uh, two different things. There was a distinction to be made between, on the one hand, the spiritual or abstract or theoretical, and on the other hand, the material, the practical, the physical. One good, the other bad, debased, profane. So then, for Greek-thinking people, the doctrine, just as an example, the doctrine of the incarnation, the truth that the eternal Son of God became flesh, that was profoundly disturbing, if not disgusting. Because why would a pure spiritual creature take on material existence, physicality? Why? And indeed, the first major Christian heresy, something that today is called Gnosticism, included the idea that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. That would be disgusting. But so then, too, also to, to, to Greek thinkers, the idea of the body dying and the soul ascending to heaven, a new and perfect spiritual existence, well, that was an easy and comfortable idea. Yeah, that idea gets a big tick. But the idea of becoming flesh again, no, that had to be wrong. So then, to Greek thinkers, a doctrine of eternal life with God in heaven, a new spiritual existence, yes, please, but this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, oh dear, flesh and matter all over again, please, no, unbelievable. Dead bodies do not come back to life, unpalatable. I'm wanting to escape this material existence and slavery to all those associated appetites. Why would God repeat the cycle? unpalatable and unimaginable. I cannot imagine how a resurrection of the dead would work and what it would look like. I just can't imagine that. Well, once again, just as we've seen again and again in the past, Paul takes the opportunity of a wrong idea in the church in Corinth, not simply as a mistake to be rectified, but as an opportunity to take them deeper into God's truth so that they might be, be, be better prepared not just to resist this one wrong idea, but others that might come along later as well. And once again, and we've seen this plenty of times in the past in 1 Corinthians, once again, this is an issue about which Paul is not emotionally neutral. No, this issue excites strong language from Paul. The tone of chapter 15, especially at the start, is confrontational, and he does not shy away from calling certain alternate theologies foolish. 
verse 36. Foolish being an extremely strong word in the ancient world. In places, this section contains stinging rebuke to the church in Corinth. No one used the words, I say this to your shame, lightly in the ancient world. What Paul is writing is potentially relationship-destroying. Paul wants to make it quite clear that his readers are not free to disagree with him over this matter. If we disagree with him on this matter of resurrection, we are sinning. To deny the resurrection of the dead for us as Christians is an evil thing. And Paul will begin his argument in rebuttal by reminding them of what they had first received and believed, reading from verses 3 to 5. For I delivered to you in the first, uh, first instance or first importance, for I delivered you in the first that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now, uh, it's widely observed that there are several very persuasive grammatical clues in, in the Greek in which uh, Paul was writing. Uh, lots and lots of clues, clear evidence to show that Paul is quoting something that he himself did not write. Uh, and one way of signaling that Paul is quoting the words of others is to put this section, as I have, in adverted commas for the sake of clarity. The four that's. This is a creed that came into being long before Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul himself received these words. Paul received these that's, and then he passed these that's onto the Corinthian Christians in the first. In other words, in the first instance, or of first importance. The first that. That Christ died for our sins. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as the price for our redemption. He took the punishment our sins deserve. According to the Scriptures, we have the Scriptures to explain to us all of the many multifaceted ways in which Jesus died for us, for our sins. For Jesus' death, was God's plan from before the creation of the world, foretold by the prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was revealed in outline right at the start, Genesis 3.15. And in places thereafter was detailed and carefully explained, such as Isaiah 53, but everywhere alluded to or pointed to through various means and methods. The second, that that he was buried. The historical fact pointing to a medical fact, Jesus was dead. 
The third, that. That he was raised on the third day. The Bible sees Jesus' death on the cross as ineffectual, that is to say, totally useless, unless there is a resurrection as well. Without the resurrection, the power of sin, which is death, is unbroken. We are saved from sin and death by the cross and the resurrection. We have eternal life by the cross and the resurrection. Perhaps, potentially, it might be possible to be forgiven by the cross, but it is not possible to be reconciled except by the resurrection. We are forgiven and reconciled by the cross and the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross is about as useful to the world as me throwing myself in front of a bus to show you how much I love you. Perhaps impressive, but in a practical sense, useless. Again, according to the Scriptures, the triumphant resurrection of the Christ was likewise God's plan all along, foretold by the prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Again, a plan that in places is explicit, such as Psalm 21 or Psalm 16, and in so many other places implicit or in the form of typology, which is to say something in history that points symbolically to its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. And insofar as the death and resurrection of Jesus is the true return of Israel into fellowship with God, it is the very thing to which everything points. The fourth, that. He was seen by Cephas, or perhaps Kephas, which is uh, uh, Peter in Aramaic, then by the twelve. Eyewitnesses were the proof that the resurrection of Jesus is historical fact. Now, uh, at this point, Paul could have elaborated on how the crucifixion and the resurrection were all according to the scriptures. He could have elaborated how all of this is biblical. Instead, he heads off from this creed in another direction. Instead of explaining how all of this is biblical, he amplifies that last point that all of this is historical, an historical fact. And he so he keeps on adding to the list of witnesses. Then he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, out of whom the majority remain until now, and some have fallen asleep. Then he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles, and last of all, as by mistimed birth, he was seen by me. After his resurrection... Jesus appeared to many people on multiple occasions, including one occasion where he appeared to more than 500 people. Most, although not all, of the many eyewitnesses were still alive 
at the time of Paul writing this? Well, from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we understand, we understand already that there were multiple instances of the risen Jesus appearing to various people at various times, to some believing women outside of the tomb on that third day, to two, two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to the apostles in a closed and locked room on the night of that third day, to those same apostles, now including Thomas, a week later, to the 11 disciples on a mountainside in Galilee, to seven disciples on the shores of Lake Galilee. But Luke tells us, both in his gospel and also in his book of Acts, Luke tells us that these resurrection appearances concluded with, an, with the ascension, Jesus being taken up before their very eyes until hid from their sight by a cloud. The ascension, a key moment in salvation history, Jesus now reigns at the right-hand side of the Father in heaven. The era in which we live, an era that will conclude with the descension, the second coming of Christ. Acts 1.10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, whom has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. But Paul, here in 1 Corinthians, is writing about something that's not mentioned in the Gospels nor in the book of Acts. We know of no instance from those books of Jesus appearing to more than 500 people, 500 believers at one time. Indeed, on the morning of the day of Pentecost, there were only about 120 believers in the whole wide world. So then it would be reasonable to understand that Paul is making reference to an event that we otherwise don't know about a post-ascension, post-Pentecost appearance at a point when 500 believers were all together gathered into one place. Around this time, Jesus also appeared to James, meaning his own brother, James, rather than the apostle James, brother of John. <clears throat> and then one last time to all the apostles, and then lastly to Paul, as though, as Paul puts it, by mistimed birth. We, well, actually, we know a lot about Jesus' appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus, a post-ascension appearance. We know in considerable detail because the episode is detailed for us in the book of Acts three times, chapters 9, 22, and again in chapter 26. Paul's birth as a Christian, as a disciple, and as an apostle was a mistimed or miscarried, or premature, or abnormal birth in two important ways. Firstly, he was really late to the party. By the way, this morning the United States of America announced that having been embarrassingly late to the last two world wars intends to be especially early to the third. 
Paul was really late to the party. He was born too late. But spiritually, he was born too early. He was the only person in this entire lineup who wasn't already a believer at the time of his resurrection appearance. Not only wasn't Paul a believer, even more so, he was a persecutor of the church. If a resurrection appearance to a believer is an unimaginable grace gift, then how much more so for Paul? Triply so. Astonishing. And awareness of this unimaginable grace leads Paul off on a tangent. Verses 9 and 10 could perhaps be put in brackets in order to show that verse 11 follows on from verse 8, not from verse 10. So I've stuck verses 9 and 10 in brackets just to to help show that this is a parenthetical thought. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. There is a difference between modesty and humility. Modesty perhaps would have prevented Paul from saying, I worked harder than all of them. But in all humility, Paul can say that because it's true. And in all humility, Paul knows that even this prize belongs to Jesus. It was simply the grace of God at work in him. Paul's own response to grace is also the product of grace. It is always the grace of God whenever anyone is enabled to believe or obey. In in any way enabled to please God. And so even in all this, all the glory goes to God. But Paul is earmarking this because nothing, he'll come back to it, because nothing in the resurrection could explain and make sense of Paul's willingness to suffer for the gospel. And this is an idea he will return to. So then, that's the creed. Paul's amplified. And the section is bookmarked, sorry, bookended, uh, uh, beginning and end, before and after. We've got references to preaching and to believing. The start of it. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you and which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. To believe in vain means to put your trust in something that is untrustworthy, that is empty and futile. Unto futility you have believed. And given that the end phrase stands as the contrast to by this gospel you are saved, to believe in vain must surely mean to be lost, not saved, to come at last to 
perishing, not eternal life. The gospel has content that cannot be tampered with without that gospel becoming something else. Indeed, a false gospel. And at the other end, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, this is what you believed. I preached has become we preached. Paul is saying just exactly the same as all the other apostles were saying. So the Corinthians can't play Peter off against Paul or Paul off against Barnabas. There is no apostolic faith beyond this one faith. There's no variation on this question. And you received has become you believed. To receive is to accept it as true. To believe is to stake your life on it. So then, there can be no argument if you consider yourself a Christian and yet the gospel message that you cling to does not include the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth as an historical fact, then it is not the Christian gospel that you are believing. And in that case, you are not forgiven and you are not saved. So then, the challenge of today's text is simply this. Do we, along with Paul and the apostles, continue to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as an historical fact? Or have we, along with some in Corinth, moved from such a conviction and so slipped into futility and vanity? Well, we can thank and praise God for preserving for us this text, because as with everything else in the Corinthian correspondence, it continues to be both necessary and relevant. For indeed, churchgoers have continued from that time, all down through history, even to today, churchgoers have continued to object to the resurrection of Jesus, claiming it to be unbelievable, unimaginable, and indeed unpalatable. And perhaps the most prolific spokesperson in our age for churchgoers who object to the resurrection has been the American Episcopalian bishop, John Shelby Spong. He utterly rejects the notion of the historical and bodily resurrection of Jesus, along with the doctrine of virgin birth, incarnation. And he utterly rejects the notion that the Christian gospel has any special significance or unique claim on eternal truth. In other words, as far as he's concerned, he's a Christian, and that's a good religion, but it's no gooder or better than any other religion. That's his point of view. His most famous book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, was published in 1991. And his most recent book, Unbelievable, why neither ancient creeds nor the Reformation can produce a living faith today, was published in 2018. In essence, he believes that it is impossible for a thinking, well-educated, contemporary man or woman to believe any of the tenets of biblical Christian faith. 
Or to put that another way, very simply, smart people know better than to believe in miracles. What is Spong's definition of a smart person? Well, I strongly suspect that Spong's definition of a smart person is someone who doesn't believe in miracles. More helpfully, we can listen to the Reverend Dr. John Dixon. Uh, John Dixon is himself a trained historian with a PhD in ancient history, and he has professional connections with Macquarie University, Sydney University, Oxford University, and perhaps most prestigiously of all, Ridley College, Melbourne. <laughs> if you don't understand why that's a joke, it's because that's the college I studied at. Well, uh, John Dixon himself, a convinced Christian, he is nevertheless able to evaluate the historical evidence relating to the resurrection of Jesus on the third day in professional historical terms. John points out that the quality of the historical sources is outstanding. Multiple sources, large numbers of witnesses, historical sources written soon after the events they purport to describe. He points out that these sources contain features that would not be present, it can be reasonably believed, if the whole thing were made up. For example, all the sources agree that the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and of the risen Jesus were all women. This is not something that the ancient world would have made up because it was embarrassing something that undermined authenticity rather than bolstering it in their ancient patriarchal cultures. And he points out that non-Christian historians in our age who cannot bring themselves to actually say that it actually happened nevertheless admit that the evidence is compelling. It would be absurd to imagine that the resurrection was so some kind of slowly developing legend or some kind of conspiracy. No. Historically, that's obviously nonsense. Something big happened. Something undeniable. Something life-changing. Something worth dying for. And to quote Professor Ed Sanders of Duke University, quote, that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to these experiences, I do not know, unquote. Actually, I think he does know. He's just in denial. To be fair, though, to Professor Ed Sanders, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. A Christian is not so much someone who knows that Jesus rose from the dead as rather a Christian is someone who knows the Jesus who rose from the dead. Paul knows that Jesus rose from the dead because he's met him. But our message today, no Christian has any business believing or teaching anything other than Jesus, risen from the dead, 
on the third day, risen physically, materially, bodily, historically, a fact. And to the risen Lord be with you all. Amen. Would you like to stand and we're going to sing again? to be